Jake, not his real name, refused to believe. Since he was an atheist, I was surprised that he kept coming to the college ministry week after week after week. I found out later on that he was coming to the college ministry because he was doing research for his book, Promoting Atheism. Eventually, Jake and I met for coffee, and we talked for several hours, and I tried to persuade him with evidence for the truthfulness of Christianity. So we talked about the cosmological argument for God's existence. Then we talked about the argument from design. Then we talked about the argument from morality. Uh, Then we talked about the problem of evil. We talked about proof for the resurrection. We talked about fulfilled prophecy. We talked about evidence for miracles. It was a long conversation. And it seemed so obvious to me. I kept thinking, I kept saying, Jake, there is so much evidence for Christianity's truth claims, yet you still believe. Help me understand where I lack evidence. But no matter what I did, I could not persuade Jake to be a Christian. Maybe you can relate. It is often very discouraging disheartening when we present evidence to our friends for the truth claims of Christianity, yet they still refuse to believe. I get discouraged when that happens, and you probably do as well. And that brings us to our passage this morning, John 6, 36 to 46. Jesus has just performed an incredible miracle in the first part of John 6. He fed 5,000 family units with five loaves of bread, and two fish. Yet, this massive throng of people refuses to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. There's all this evidence for the truthfulness of his claims, yet they refuse to believe. Now, you'd think he would be discouraged. He could say, seriously, guys, you don't believe? I just performed an incredible miracle. You all saw it. Yet, none of them believed. But this did not discourage Jesus. Why? Well, that brings us to the main point of this morning's passage. Jesus recognized, he firmly believed that no matter what happens, God will save and preserve all of his chosen ones, period. And that should encourage us as well as we are out evangelizing our friends, praying for our friends, facing rejection. We must remember as well that God the Father will save and preserve all of his chosen ones, period. That brings up the work of God in salvation. This passage highlights four different aspects of God's saving and preserving work. Four points this morning. God elects, God draws, God welcomes, and God preserves. First, God elects. Look with me at John 6, 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never, ever cast out. What does the word all refer to in the first part of verse 37. Jesus is referring to all the people chosen by God. Now, we know he's referring to a group of people because the word all is in the neuter singular form. 
In other words, it's referring to a collective body of people. According to Ephesians 1.4, these people were chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world. Same group of people is described by Jesus in John 17.6. Jesus says this when he's praying. Uh, I have manifested your name, he's praying to the Father, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Back to John 6.37. Jesus is essentially saying, God the Father, before the foundation of the world, chose a group of people to save. And then he gave those people to me. And all the people that he gave to me, I will receive. I will never, ever cast them out. I will not lose a single one of them. All those chosen by the Father, the Son graciously received, and he promises to cast none of them out. Now, this group of people is referred to as the elect at least 16 times in the New Testament alone. For instance... Matthew 24, 31, Jesus says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. How about Mark 13, 20? Jesus says, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he, that is the Father, chose, he shortened the days. One more, Romans 8, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, no one, because it is God who justifies. Now, in addition, when you include the synonyms for election, like chosen, um, appointed, predestined, elect, that word group shows up 38 times in the New Testament. Matthew twenty two fourteen. Here's another for instance. For many are called, but few are chosen. Acts thirteen forty eight. And when the Gentiles heard this, that is the gospel. I'm sorry. They heard good news about people responding to the gospel. They they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. One more text. Romans eight twenty nine to thirty. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Actually, one more verse, Ephesians 1, which we read earlier this morning for our call to worship. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5, Paul says this. These glorious words, even as he, that is the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And many, many other texts indicate the same thing. God the Father, before the foundation of the world, chose certain people to lavish with love and grace and mercy. Back to John 6, 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This means that every single person 
chosen by the Father, will be redeemed by the Son, and nothing and no one can stop this from happening. Not one person chosen by the Father will be lost. Every person chosen by the Father will be warmly received and embraced by the Son. The salvation of the elect will happen no matter what. This cannot be thwarted by premature death. This cannot be thwarted by World War III. This cannot be thwarted by Satan. This cannot be thwarted by a global pandemic, a massive recession, political corruption, violent oppression, and militant Islam. Nothing can stop this from happening. Now, People often think that this doctrine discourages evangelism. Nothing is further from the truth. If we know that all those chosen by the Father will be received by the Son and saved, doesn't that encourage us to go out and talk to our friends about Jesus? Because if that's true, God will use us. People will respond. It's been foreordained. But before we move on, let's revel a little in the love of God for the saints. If you're a Christian, God the Father loved you, yes, you, so much that before the foundation of the world, he chose to set his affection on you. And he loved you so much that he gave you to his son as a gift. And the son loves you so much that he gladly received you from the father. And because the son loves you and the father loves you so much, they devised a plan together in eternity past for the son to suffer and die in your place and remove the guilt and stain of all your sins. God the Father and God the Son are committed to your eternal happiness. When will you doubt God's love this week? When you have that poor performance review by your boss? When you lose a bunch of money in the stock market? When you and your spouse are in significant conflict? When your child rejects you and leaves the family, when your health is poor. When you doubt God's love, remember that in eternity past, trillions of years ago, God the Father set his special love on you. And then he gave you to the Son, and the Son agreed to come and suffer and die for your sins. What more can God do to you to communicate to you that he loves you with an extravagant love? Well, once God chooses the elect, how do they actually come to faith in Christ? And that brings us to the second point. God elects, second, God draws. God elects and God draws. John 6, 41 to 44. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Again, the Jewish crowds refuse to believe in Jesus. They see all the evidence, but they refuse to believe. 
Verse 43, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The crowds refuse to believe in Jesus, and Jesus has the guts to say to them, the reason you don't believe right now in spite of all the evidence is because the Father is not drawing you. That's why you're not believing right now. Let's look carefully at verse 44. Jesus says, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one literally means no one, without exception. And can, the word can, has to do with ability, not will or desire. In other words, it's impossible for them to come. No one is able. Well, why is that the case? Why can no one come to Jesus unless the Father draws him by the power of the Holy Spirit? Because of what the Bible says about humanity and their unredeemed condition. It's not very flattering. Let me read a few texts for you that describe who we were before God decided in his grace to save us. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. We were spiritually dead before God saved us. Romans 3, 10 to 12, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. Before conversion, you did not seek God, unless Paul's lying to us. You may have sought truth or meaning or goodness or beauty, but you weren't seeking the God of the Bible according to the Apostle Paul. John 3, 3 and 5, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Romans 8, 7 to 8, for the mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Paul says, the natural person, that is the unredeemed person, the non-Christian, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Paul is saying that the gospel is folly to non-Christians. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. All these texts are saying one thing. Before conversion, we don't like God. And we're blind to the things of God. And the gospel is folly to us because of our sin nature. Therefore, God must do something. God must draw us to himself or we will not believe because we don't want to believe. John 6, again, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, what does that word draw mean? Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. When we think about drawing people, we tend to think of kids being drawn to candy, or bees being drawn to honey, or flies being drawn to garbage. It's more of a wooing or an enticing or a persuading. But the Greek word for draw is much, much 
stronger. It means to compel. Jesus was not saying, no one can come to the Father, or no one can come to me unless the Father woos him or persuades him. The same Greek word that Jesus used in John 6, is used in Acts 21, 31, where Paul is seized and dragged out of the temple at Jerusalem. And we can be sure that the angry Jewish guards did not try to woo Paul into coming with him. They dragged him. That's the same word there. The same Greek word is also used to describe the action of the disciples as they are pulling or drawing their nets filled with fish into their boat. It's a compelling, not a wooing or an enticing or a persuading. Theologian R.C. Sproul tells this story. He says this, I once took part in a public debate with the head of the New Testament department at a Midwestern seminary. We were debating the doctrine of election, and we eventually came to this text, John 6, 44. I pointed out to him that the Greek word translated as draws actually means compel, not entice or woo. In response, he quoted an obscure text from the secular literature of ancient Greece, wherein the same Greek word was used to speak of drawing water out of a well. He said, now, Dr. Sproul, when you get water out of a well, do you compel it or drag it out of the well? Everyone in the audience roared. So I said, well, you got me there. I didn't even know that text existed in classical Greek. But let me ask you, how do you get water out of a well? Do you stand up there and look down and say, here, water, 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 water? Do you woo it up to you? Of course not. The water is inert. You have to go get it. You have to compel it or drag it to you. In a similar sense, when God calls us, we can't resist. We may resist for a season. I resisted for many years. But eventually, if God is calling us in this way, God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, eventually we will respond. Well, Dave, are we robots? No. Now, here's where the real mystery comes in. Theologians call this effectual calling, which means it's effective. So, God the Father chooses us, and then God the Spirit begins to call us to himself. And what happens is, God the Spirit makes Jesus Christ so beautiful and glorious and compelling that we want to respond to Jesus. And eventually, we make a decision to respond to Jesus. But that decision is guaranteed. How does that work? I don't know how that works. But when God calls us this way, we decide to follow him, but that was enabled by the Holy Spirit, and that decision was guaranteed in eternity past. Well, Dave, what about free will? Well, that depends on how you're defining free will. We all have free will in the sense that we all make decisions based on our desires and our nature. But here's the problem. Before conversion, because of our sin nature, none of us desire Jesus. None of us want Jesus. Therefore, we don't want to follow him. So in that sense, our will's enslaved. Well, Dave, 
It seems unfair that God would draw some and not draw others. And that fairness question is a great question. It's often asked in this conversation. But think about it this way. Imagine that there were a thousand people in prison. And they were there because they committed some violent crimes. They were there for life because of the crimes they committed. And it's towards the end of Biden's term, and he's feeling awfully magnanimous, and he has pres- presidential pardon power. And so he decides out of that, those thousand prisoners that deserve to be there for life, he decides to pardon 13 of them. Now, those who were left in prison, can they raise their fists and say, that's not fair? No. They're criminals. They deserve to be in that prison. But those that were pardoned can definitely respond with incredible joy and gratitude and thankfulness. You see, many of us assume that we all deserve to be in heaven but none of us deserve to be in heaven because of our sin nature and because of the fact that we break God's commands all the time. Here's the application. If you're a Christian, it's because the Father in eternity past decided to set his affection on you, not because of any good he saw in you, not because of a decision he saw you would make, He simply decided to lavish you with love because he's a God of extravagant grace and mercy. And if that's true, you're not a Christian because you're smarter, wiser, more discerning or spiritually attuned than the non-Christian sitting next to you. And if that's true, this should humble us. And Christians should be the least self-righteous people you know, for they have nothing to boast in. Salvation is all of grace. Have you thanked him recently? And have you demonstrated that gratitude in a life of joyful obedience? Now, at this point, some of you may be wondering, Dave, what if I'm not elect? Am I in big trouble? That brings us to the third point. First, God elects. Second, God draws. And third, God welcomes. Who does God welcome? Answer, anyone who believes. Look with me at John 640. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, everyone without exception, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says that anyone, I repeat, anyone who looks on the Son and believes has eternal life without exception. We see similar language in Romans 10. Romans 10, 13, Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How about John 3, 16? Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever without distinction believes in him should not perish but have ever eternal life. The Bible is very clear that anyone, anyone, anyone 
who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're worried right now, am I numbered among the elect? And what Christian hasn't worried about that? I have. When I worry about that, I hang on with both hands to John 6, 40, where Jesus says, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. If you're tempted right now to be self-righteous or proud and to think, I'm a Christian because I kind of figured things out, well, then John 6, is for you, where Jesus says, no one, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Both texts are true. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign over salvation, and the Bible also teaches that everyone who believes will be saved. God is sovereign, and we are responsible, and both those things are somehow true. How does that work, Dave? I don't know. It's way above my pay grade. Now, according to many, the hardest undergraduate math class in the world, anyone know what it is? Math 55 at Harvard University. Now, Math 55 requires 30 to 60 hours of homework per week, and it's just one of your five or six classes per semester, which means this class is essentially a full-time job. It covers four years of insanely difficult coursework in two semesters. One problem often takes several hours and 20 pages of equations to solve. Now, the kids at Harvard are not dummies. They're very smart. They're the best and the brightest in the world. And the kids in Math 55 are mostly Harvard math majors, and most of them competed, I don't know there's such a thing, in the International Math Olympics competition, which I was not a part of when I was a child. That may surprise some of you. Math was not my strength. Over half of these super gifted students fail Math 55. Math majors at Harvard. That's how hard this class is. Shifting gears. The last couple of weeks, I have noticed most mornings at about 7 a.m., a rattling noise coming from my roof. I thought, is it the wind? Like, what is that noise? And then eventually, um, I, I Googled, what does a woodpecker sound like? And it sounded just like the noise I was hearing. So I walked outside one morning and looked up, and sure enough, I saw a big woodpecker on a thick metal pipe trying to drill his beak into a metal pipe over and over and over again. And it's not working. Yet every morning, this stupid woodpecker is up on my roof trying to stick his beak into my pipe. So I throw rocks at him, I yell, I scream, and he flies away. He's a dumb woodpecker. Now, would you expect this woodpecker to pass Math 55 at Harvard? No. Why? He's a woodpecker. That's a really hard math class. Yet, how, how much greater is the distance 
between our brains and God. It's an infinite distance. So, of course, you and I should expect a vast amount of mystery in theology. If not, we're incredibly arrogant. We're dealing with a God who spoke billions of galaxies into existence out of nothing by the power of his word. Somehow he is able to create a universe where divine sovereignty and human responsibility work together. I don't know how that works, but the Bible teaches both. God is sovereign over salvation, yet all of us everywhere must make a decision to repent of our sins and trust him. And if we do, it's because God enabled that. This is meant to be good news for us, not a debating point in theology. The good news is that God has chosen you to be his child. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist from Chicago, used to describe the mystery of election this way. He would say that salvation is like walking through a door. And when you approach that door, above the door, it very clearly says, all are welcome. Then when you walk through the door and look back at the door, the backside of the door says, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Both those things are somehow true. If you're not a Christian this morning, you must make a decision this morning to follow Jesus. If you don't, you will experience something like the cross for all eternity. That's what the cross tells us. Our sin was so bad that it deserved crucifixion. And if you refuse to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, you'll face that horrible experience for all eternity. So the question is, why in the world would you not humble yourself, admit you're a sinner and say, Jesus, please forgive me and change me, make me your child and help me obey your commands. And if you don't do that, sin will ruin your life. And it will ruin your relationships and eventually ruin your body. God is calling to all of us, everyone, everywhere, and he's saying, you must make a decision to trust Jesus. But maybe you're thinking, Dave, I've done some really, really bad things. Will God forgive me? Jesus says, everyone, everyone, everyone who looks to the Son should have eternal life. And since everyone is invited to follow Jesus, we must try to persuade everyone we know to follow Jesus with the confidence that God will accomplish his purposes. He will save his own, and he wants to use us to get the message out to all those that need to hear it. Well, once God welcomes us, then the question becomes, how do we know that we're going to persevere until the end? Will that happen? That brings us to the fourth and final point. God elects, God draws, God welcomes, and finally, God preserves. John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then John 6, 39 to 40, Jesus says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing 
of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What a promise. Jesus Christ is saying that if you are looking to the Son, it's a fact. He will raise you up on the last day. He preserves us so that we can persevere. This text clearly teaches that if you're truly saved, you will remain saved for all eternity because Jesus Christ will not let go of those the Father has given him. If he did, it would be rejecting the Father's gift to him. But because Jesus loves us and loves the Father, he has promised to save and preserve all those given to him by the Father. What a promise. Genuine Christians will never, ever lose their salvation because Christ has us with both hands and he will not let go. And Jesus says the same thing later on in John's gospel. John 10, 27 to 30, just in case we're not clear on this, he says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And again, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Both the Son and the Father are holding on to us, and they will not let go. Which I personally find very encouraging. Again, let's revel for a little bit in God's love. God the Father chose you in eternity past to be his child. Then he gave you to the Son, and the Son promised to never, ever, ever cast out anyone given to him by the Father. And then both the, the Father and the Son have agreed to hold on to you with both hands until you reach resurrection. They will not let go. It's as if Jesus is saying... The triune God has loved you throughout all eternity. His love spans back to eternity past and moves into eternity future. The triune God has always loved you and will never stop loving you and will ensure that someday you will arrive at your eternal home. You are safe and secure in the iron-clad arms of the triune God. Salvation is all of grace. Back to where we started. The next time you are discouraged after talking with and praying for and trying to persuade your non-Christian friends to follow Jesus and they keep rejecting you and rejecting you and rejecting you, remember the truths of John 6, 36 to 46. Jesus proclaims boldly that all those chosen by the Father, will be saved and will be preserved. And if that's true, you and I can have great, great confidence that our evangelism will be effective. No one and nothing can thwart the Father's glorious plan to save sinners. Let's pray.